Hello, you're listening to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM, broadcasting from the unceded territory of the Musqueam people on UBC's Point Grey campus. And to start off the show today, I am joined by Michelle Kim, Vancouver writer, filmmaker, or uh, multidisciplinary artist, would you say? Yeah, I would say so. Talk Thanks. about her new book, Running, with, Running Through Sprinklers. Running Through Sprinklers. How you doing? Good, how are you? I can't complain. You know... Another day in the life of public radio. <laughs> Enjoyed your bread pudding there. I right did, before, yeah. Yeah, yeah had, we had bread. There's bread pudding at the deli. Um, it's weird eating bread pudding cold. I've made it before because mm-hmm. Terry Crews has a recipe for bread pudding mm-hmm. on hot ones. And, yeah, you know, it, it, it does – it is a very carbohydrate-heavy food. If you're ever, you know, running sh- – if you ever need to build up on the diet, you know, yeah. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, well, it's a recommendation from an ex-football player turned muscle man actor, so you know it's good. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Now, running through sprinklers is a pitch that was very interesting to me because it's a coming-of-age story. Mm -hmm. The press release describes it as Stand By Me, but with a multicultural and female focus. Mm -hmm. Could you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, um, well, it's a coming-of-age story and sort of coming-apart story of two girls, uh, who are both um, half Asian, who live in Surrey, actually. Um, So I have a lot of very Surrey-specific references in the book. Um, And it's about two girls who have been best friends their whole lives and how they start to grow apart over one year. Um, So it's sort of like losing your first love because Uh. young – well, young girls at around that age – A lot of them, I think, and this happened to me, you have this really intense relationship with this girl, like a best friend, and you tell them everything, you're always on the phone, and like you think that will last forever, and then it doesn't, because life happens. It's almost like your first relationship, in a sense. So I wanted to write a book about that, and sort of talking about female friendship, and not going into romantic relationships. I sort of wanted to write a book uh, that sort of passed the Bechdel test. (laughs) That's interesting because romantic relationships usually play this sort of foundational or at least cornerstone role in a lot of of coming-of-age stories. Yeah, and I I think it's, like, not true to what's actually going on. And it's, it's sort of, I don't know, I don't think it's really good for, you know, young girls to read about that. Like thinking that that's sort of like a major relationship or like really important in your life when your friendships can be really important as well. Do you think that's a lesson a lot of people learn the hard way? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's like um, feeling like you need to be in a relationship, something yeah. like that. Yeah, I think so. Is and, that- and then like, yeah, I mean, I know for myself, like actually the genesis of this book was back when I was going to UBC here and I was on 10th in a deli that's probably not there anymore. And I was completely heartbroken. And my mom took me there, and she bought me soup or something. And then there was a t- the table next to us. There were about four elderly women who were talking to each other and thanking each other for being there when their husbands passed away. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, like you know, guys can, you know, leave you by death at an old age even. And you, and you, all you have, or, you know, a lot of the times you have your female friends to help you get through it. And in this case is sort of the, the opposite. This is seeing the start of something like that. Yeah, seeing the start of this, yeah, of this bond and the importance of this bond between women. Is that a personal experience for you? What it was? Oh, Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that was a dumb question. No, no. Oh, well, like, no, no, it wasn't. I, um, yeah, I would say that at that age, I definitely had intense friendships with women. And I sort of continue to have them. Like, I'll meet a friend and, you know, she's so exciting. And then we do all these things together, you know, in, in different parts of my life, like someone in film or whatnot. I, I seem to have this pattern. <laughs> And I'm like heterosexual, <laughs> so it's it's pretty interesting. Because you, your film, The Tree Inside, this is you you wrote, pr- directed, and yeah. starred in, yeah, co-directed, yeah, is about this character played by you, yeah, I believe, who changes, uh, sort of relationships with the seasons, almost, yeah, the yeah, parallel. yeah, yeah. That was, uh, yeah, I sort of wanted to 
Well, that was an ins- that was inspired by a Facebook post by a friend of mine who's who you know, there's a picture of her in November standing by a restaurant actually looking quite beautiful and someone said, "Oh, this is a great photo." And she said, "Oh, I hate this time of year. Why? My life always falls apart in around November." And then my friend, my other friend commented, "Well, maybe you were a tree in a in another life." And I was like, "Oh, that's an interesting premise." Hmm. So I just made a a film you know, out of a Facebook post, basically. Oh, you got to start from somewhere. It's interesting to hear that because when these stories come across in different ways, Mm -hmm. like I remember, um, like I see, sometimes I see something, I'm thinking that would make a great story. Like even if it's a, or I do, I do stand-ups of jokes a little Mm -hmm. bit. Sometimes like there was a, honestly, UBC Confessions a little bit. (laughs) Thank God for anonymity. (laughs) That's uh, it's sort of a Facebook page where people confide different mm-hmm, things. Mm-hmm. One one amazing one I remember revo- involving a web work problem being written on someone's body. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> <laughs> as far as that comes around. And um, I assume that that variety of shenanigans isn't really present in the book. Like, what sort of things happen? What sort of things typify this friendship to you? Oh, well... Just, I guess, these girls live in a cul-de-sac, and they're at each other's houses all the time. And so one family, um, it's the mother's Korean, and the dad is Caucasian, and the other family is the father's Japanese, and the mother's Caucasian. Um, But I don't really sort of talk about that. You just sort of figure that out. And that was really important to me that I just really made that natural, because that is loosely based on my own life growing up biracial where I just thought it was normal I mean growing up in Surrey it was like I don't know super multicultural and like in my class there were always a couple mixed kids and I never really thought that that was strange or anything um and so they're always at each other's houses they almost feel like they're one big family bless you thank you I I, I just had to sneeze (laughs) away from the microphone you tried to hide it or turn away. The sound okay. of the chair okay. rattling might have been a, a good. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Sorry to interrupt, though. Um, what was I saying? Uh, yeah, and they just, they, you know, you know, sitting, um, going to the pharmacy, sitting on the floor, flipping through magazines, right? Hmm. Fashion magazines uh, is what these girls do. Um, bike rides to the corner store. I mean, this book is set in the 90s, so I don't really have, a, there's no texting, or anything so it, it I, you know I think I was one of the last you know I had one of the last childhoods without all of that because I got the you know we got the internet I don't know I had an e- I got an email address when I was in grade 11 right so um we just sort of played outside all the time hmm. and that's well that's because I I did I did too I'm yeah yeah but I was like that I think I think that was more like I I, I didn't know how to use a tv remote until I was 10 oh really yeah yeah, no, I'm just an idiot. It's taken me three years to figure out how the mic buttons work on this. <laughs> and I, I do want to talk about your family uh, situation, sort of, because mm-hmm. uh, according to your IMDb page, your father's a lawyer, your mother's a fashion designer, and mm-hmm. that seems like a very interesting sort of mm-hmm. intellectual environment to grow up in. And I'm just mm-hmm. wondering how that sort of, uh, mm-hmm. if, if at all, how that sort of involved I, itself in your work. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought about this kind of recently. My dad... He is. He's a human rights lawyer. Um, he, he uh, you know, he, he writes a lot. So I think that's where I got the writing from. And my mom's, a, you know, she's no longer a fashion designer, but she was a visual artist. And so I think that, um, like, this book, I wrote it, but it, I think it, there's a, I've been told, I don't know, it might not be true, but there's a cinematic quality to it. And I'm a filmmaker, so it's, it's kind of like, they both influenced me in their own ways. Like I'm, I'm far more visual than my father, um, and I don't know. Like I got the the writing bug from my father as well. Like your mother inculcated this sort of visual understanding yeah, in you, and your father yeah. gave you the writing. Yeah, I think so. And then my brother is the GM of a golf course and country club, so <laughs> he's the sort of oddball in the family. He's he's the one with the business acumen. Yes, he's like yeah, he's he gets he's, a lot of phone calls. Hey, how do I fill out this T four? <laughs> He's just, he's, he's quite different, but, um, that's interesting. Yeah. And, uh, okay. So with that in mind, cause that, that's very interesting to me, sort of 
this environment comes from because you've done a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Like you've had your name on a lot of different projects. And you have, a, have some interesting IMDb credits. The one that sticks out to me uh, here is a small credit in a movie called Christmas Lodge, oh, right. which is a Hallmark <laughs> movie, yes. a, a Thomas Kincaid movie. <laughs> and I know about Thomas Kincaid as a person. He was, have you ever heard about him? Not really. He, so he was a painter and okay. he mass, he's the first painter to go public on the stock market. Really? Um, yeah. He was, he, he appealed to Hallmark basically as an audience, very saccharine. A lot of his paintings were, he had about a hundred original paintings and then had them reproduced. He also ended his life like Jim Morrison. Oh, wow. Like he was a rampant alcoholic, probably a scam artist, had this insane double life mm-hmm. being lived uh because he did business with hallmark <laughs> and he wow. he was he was living his life like caligula <laughs> i just want to know what that was like what that environment was because it's a very specific sort of aesthetic and a very sort of specific experience they're aiming to create okay i mean this was a while ago i was gonna say so, does that go back a little far That's it, just it a goes little, well i i didn't I, don't, I didn't have a large role i showed up at the door in the scene and I just said something like our car broke down my family like we don't have a Christmas and then we got invited inside the house that's basically it was like not very long but I got my own trailer I remember that and I remember they casted my children and my husband and they looked exactly like like my they looked like my kids it was really kind of creepy really good yeah it was really creepy and they they didn't know (laughs) Well, they knew what I looked like, but they just based on that, they sort of figure out, okay, this is what your children would look like. But they never uh, asked you what your kids or your husband. No, no, no. They just do it themselves. It's pretty, yeah. Some impressive resources. Can you cast my life, please? (laughs) And having done so many of these things, what's sort of the strangest project you've ever sort of put your resources to? The strangest? I mean, strange and fun. Um, Certainly. Uh, I did like a Bloodshots video once and it was about it was like a horror film I don't know and it was I think about a a couple who like murder other people together it was quite dark but it was really funny and it it involved cats and trying to make meatloaf for dinner let's just say that it was pretty bizarre well I'm not a cat person so (laughs) So you're fine with that it, it doesn't trouble me yeah I'm, yeah. I'm more of a dog's guy. Yeah, me even too. I, I can't have pets, though. My family's got allergies to no. dander. So, so yeah. it is. You know? I've got a chihuahua. So. But it's... Oh, it, <laughs> tell me something. Chihuahuas, they jump. They mm-hmm. can jump yep. a surprising height. Does yep. it ever, like, jump to grab things? Oh, no, he doesn't do that. But he can jump on the sofa, which is quite... Like, he's really little, right? And he just sort of springs up. And yeah. It's it's remarkable. It's like he's loaded with elastic. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. He's still <laughs> doing that at age twelve. So age twelve. <laughs> so he's he'd be uh, eighty four in human yeah. years. Well, I think small dogs they live a lot longer. So it's he's a bit younger than that. Oh, that's 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 interesting. Yeah, but he's still like a little old man. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> He totally is. <laughs> well, like it's, it's like a pug is sort of all already born that way. Yeah, yeah. So it's like having a baby. John Mulaney is a bulldog. He's a great line. It's like it's like having a baby that's also a grandma. Yes, totally. Because <laughs> like you live in kits, right? No, I'm yeah. actually back in Surrey right now, due to various reasons. But yeah. Okay, sorry, information <laughs> failure. I live in kits. I see a lot of dogs, and yeah. I saw a pug barking at a Great Dane the other day. Yeah, yeah. And it was really funny because the Great Dane just looked confused. <laughs> like, wh- what is this just, thing? Just, you, you, you can't breathe. How can you bark at me? Was the expression on his <laughs> okay. face. Okay. Are guy. you barking? Yeah. Yeah, it's like. <laughs> is that. <laughs> That's the. Uh, we got a story for pugs. <laughs> Okay, there's no way to sig this back. There is a, <laughs> Is there a pug in the book? N- no. Worth a shot. No, there's a hamster. Oh, really? Yes, the hamster. Major role? Yes, pretty major role. First pet. Oh, yeah. Uh, first pet. We've all had... Did you have a hamster? No, I had a fish. Okay. I had a... Uh, his name was Simon. <laughs> and and his, it was Siamese? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah, put the mirror in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. reflection. Yeah. I, I know... I know guy. I know people who do that. So <laughs> probably you have a few drinks, and is that that sort of um, 
a motif there, you know, the, having the first pet because that's yeah. also the first experience where you're taking care of something. Yeah, and then, you know, not to, I mean, this is a bit of a spoiler, but like, oh. yeah, death of the first pet, right? I mean, that's a, that's, yeah. a, that's something that happens that you have to deal with. Sort of, if the friendship's a sort of a dry run for heartbreak. Then it's yeah, for... yeah, that goes along with it, yeah. Yeah. And I, I gotta ask, um, is there a coming-of-age story that you specifically think needs more exposure or a particular story that influenced you while thinking of this, while writing of this? Hmm. Not really. I mean, I drew a little bit on some of my own life, but none of the events actually happened, like, in, like that happened in my life happened in the book. Um, I would say not really. I mean, I, yeah, I'd like to say I was influenced by this, you know, like Stand By Me or any of the great coming of age novels. Well, you know what? You know what? One book I really loved and maybe subconsciously it's probably sort of their, you know, their I don't know, shadows of it is Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret by Judy Bloom. I love that book. That's interesting because I just read uh, Marbles by Ellen Forney and she interviewed Julie Blue. Oh, really? Yeah. That that book sort of that's that's one of the yeah. big coming of age stories. Yeah, like for... I loved I loved that book. I I remember like I I believe there's like a period scene there and I remember thinking about that when I was writing uh, about this girl getting her first period, um, and and actually that was something that came up when I was trying to get published was whether I had to ask the editors, like different editors, would you take out that scene? Hmm. And some of them, you know, wanted to, which was kind of interesting. So I wasn't really into that. <laughs> it's usually sort of experience there. Yeah, yeah. And another thing about coming-of-age stories mm-hmm. that I, I do want to touch on before we have to cut to our, our break is mm-hmm. you're hosting an event, a multi-ethnic storytelling for teens, mm-hmm. this Sunday. Yeah, this Sunday. And I just wonder, what are you hoping to accomplish with that? Oh. What's that going to be like? Um, so there are three of us, uh, three authors, and it's called Mixed Me, multi-ethnic storytelling. And uh, we're going to be talking about our books and then we're actually going to have workshops for the kids to be at so Jeff Chiba Stearns um, he's an animator he'll have some sort of um, station where kids can learn how to draw or color in uh, the different creatures he's created in his books uh, which are like mixed animals so he took like two different animals and sort of created a new animal and I'll be doing like a, a writing workshop as well and um, yeah, so it's just like at the Museum of Vancouver. It's the Sunday, one to three. And then on June 12th, um, we're doing an event. I'm doing an event with Charlie Demers and Sam Weeb called um, Suburb- Suburbia Takes on Main Street because we all, we all wrote about the suburbs. We had, and, uh, yeah. yeah Char- did, did you have him? Yeah, well, he called in. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, for uh, for property values. Yeah, yeah. So he his book is in Coqu- set in Coquitlam. And yeah, it'll be. So he's got Coquitlam, you've got Surrey, and the third piece of the puzzle would be. Sam's book, which is set in Washington State and somewhere else. Like, I'm actually not quite sure what suburb. Close enough. Yes, <laughs> somewhere. Well, is I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm to read his book. Really larger soon. than Vancouver? Is it a bigger city? Yeah. I'm just trying to make a I joke would... about Seattle being a suburb of Vancouver. Okay, uh, okay, okay. Not really coming through. Sorry. Well, people confuse the two. Like, it's like, um, I remember, I think in Highlander, the city is called Seacouver. Just, just throw them both together. <laughs> it will get two different countries. They, it's, it's, it's the same. Remember, remember Frasier, that show set in Seacouver? Yeah. Actually, there, this book is also set in Seattle. Um, okay. There's a scene in Seattle. Just a... Was there a choice? Um, oh, oh, no, 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 not really. Because the majority of it is still set in Surrey. It's Surrey. Surrey, Vancouver, Seattle, Korea. How much yeah. in Korea? Is there, is there something about there's the one, of culture? Yeah, there's one one scene in Korea. Because the girl, because she's half Korean, she goes to visit her um, mom's side of the family. Yeah. It, it, but it's, set, it's in a flashback from when she was five. So it's sort of like like she's remembering it. Uh, yeah. we, all, we all had those yeah. moments, you know. Yeah. Remember when you... Yeah. All right. Well, it sounds looks like an excellent book. Uh, it's put up by Athenaeum, 
Yes, yeah. which is an imprint of Simon & Schuster, right? Yeah. Yeah. So check it out. Pick it up. St- swing by the event on Sunday. Michelle, it was lovely to have you in the studio with us. Thank you so much, Jake. Yeah. It was and, lovely. Uh, yeah. Best of luck. Thank you. Cheers. Uh, we're going to have a, a quick uh, s- small self-promotion, not for the show, because apparently apparently we don't have those. Um, I'm on for 15 minutes. 50. Here's a word from our sponsors. When you join Balloon Club, we guarantee that you will be able to make a balloon poodle within the first day. Here at the UBC Ant Club, we just like to talk about ants and compare ant farms. Uh, It's really cool. Paperclip Club is all about, well, paperclips mostly. At Blah Club, you can blah blah, blah 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 blah. Explosion. There's only one club worth joining at UBC, and that's CITR 101.9 FM. We got free tickets to shows, whirly pops, professional help in all types of audio engineering, passes to festivals, crazy parties, live band swag, all types of crazy people. Our programming manager rides a motorcycle. There's freestyle rapping, Nardwar, the human serviette, the vinyl and record libraries, Discord or magazine, free studio recording, and it sure beats the hell out of Paperclip Club, which is a thing that I just made up because I work at CITR. So come check us out on the floor of the Student Union Building. We got all types of crazy sh** for you to do. Or check us out online at www.citr.ca. CITR and Discorder, but are you a true friend? Get a Friends of CITR and Discorder card for $20 for discounts in Kitsilano and around UBC at On the Fringe Hair Design, Rufus Guitar Shop, Stormcrow Ale House, The Bike Kitchen, UBC Bookstore, Australian Boot Company, and so many more. Smooth like glass. <laughs> I try to make the segue work. You may want to pull that mic in a little. Hey, and we are back on the Arts Report. I'm still Jake Clark. We're still broadcasting from the unceded Musqueam territory of UBC's Vancouver campus. And I am now joined by Laura Carey, uh, who is here to talk to us about Terminal City Glass Co-op and their upcoming events. Laura, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me on CITR. It's a pleasure. So I'm actually interested in glass blowing because I have... I have an awareness of it. It's a very interesting art. There's an art gallery near in a town called Bayfield in Ontario that has some really beautiful blown glass. But it's always seemed like this very fascinating and almost dangerous art to me. And I'm sort of wondering, can you, can you unpack that? Like, what's something we've got to know as listeners about glass? Uh, well, the number one is you have to be protected from the heat. Uh, so when you're blowing glass, it's kind of counterintuitive uh, that you would be wearing long sleeves in uh, in a hot shop, which is definitely very hot. But the ambient heat can actually uh, really irritate your skin. So it's wise to be covered. Um, it's just wise to follow the instructions of the person who's teaching you. It is pretty, uh, it has the potential to be dangerous, but generally if you follow the practices, uh, you're in good shape. Uh, closed-toed shoes, tie your hair back, things like that. And then it's just a lot of dedication to the practice. It takes quite a long time to get skilled at it. I hadn't really realized that um, in addition to having to have like the design skills and the technical understanding, you're actually very physically uncomfortable while you're working with glass. So there's also this concentration factor that's different from really any other art form. But overall, uh, it's kind of like cooking for a living. You have some burns on your arms, but uh, generally the rest of you is intact. Yeah, well, most chefs aren't working with molten silica, too. So that's yeah. <laughs> so that's that's a, that's a slightly added element there. And how did you come to it personally? What's your, do you, what's your connection to the art form? So I came in through my history as an administrator. Uh, I actually got my start in um, arts administration working at the Canadian Clay and Glass Gallery in Waterloo, Ontario. I'm also from Ontario. Really? Yes. Uh, And after that, um, when I got out to Vancouver, this was only about a year ago that I started working at Terminal City, but through my connection to the world of clay and glass is how I actually got into this role. 
But uh, my kind of longer history with craft is much deeper than that. Like my parents were artisans when I was growing up. So I grew up around the one of a kind show in Toronto and um, I've just had a lifelong commitment to being an administrator because I frankly don't have the self-discipline to be an artist, but I'm self-disciplined enough to support other people being artists. And you've got the organization here with the co-op, certainly. Yeah. And it's, it's advertised as Canada's first and only non-profit mm-hmm. last co-op. And it's, been, it's got almost 200 members, according to the page, and uh, 600 people annually taking courses. Yep. So you're definitely putting that out there. You're definitely sort of compiling the discipline. Definitely. So one of the things that's interesting about our co-op, well, first of all, is that it is a cooperative. That's a... A lot of people do know about that business model. I find it to be really radical, and it's neat when it's married to really any kind of institution. Um, it even you know gets folded into financial institutions like credit unions. But what makes our our uh, business really interesting is it is a cooperative, so each member is a part owner. Uh, they get to dictate the direction that the co-op goes in. And we've come together to form this and maintain a glass community that can um, access these cost-prohibitive pieces of equipment. So when we started, there was probably a core of about 30 members in our first year, many of whom were already pretty serious glass artists, if not professionals. And since that time, the other 170 people who've joined the co-op got introduced to glass through Terminal City. Um, You mentioned our education programs, too. Uh, We actually have uh, the stats are more like over 750 in a year that people will come in and come to our programming. And what's nice about having that is um, if you actually look across Canada, the concentration of where there is uh, glass art um, accessibility is mostly in Ontario and Quebec. Um, There's nothing in the prairies. Then there's the Alberta College of Art and Design and then us. So we're the you know, pretty much the only place west of Ontario that you don't have to go to art school to learn about glass. Um, we've got drop-in programs that last 30 minutes. We've got six-week programs and advanced uh, teachers who come from overseas to teach at least four or five times a year. So we run the whole gamut, but it's a really great place to try it out, which is um, something that, frankly, I'd never thought I'd have the opportunity to do before I got involved with Terminal City Glass Co-op. And what are some of the things you'd learn to make if you were, say, taking an intro-level course in glass blowing? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the it's more about learning the techniques of working with glass, but in one of our weekend workshops or six-week intro to glass blowing programs, uh, you're led through a series of, pr- of projects that are increasingly difficult as the weeks go on. Um, the first thing you learn to make is a paperweight, which is really just a learning about how to gather the molten glass, is when you're doing glass blowing, you're starting with a basically picture like a witch's cauldron from like a cartoon, but it's full of melted glass, and then you dip um, a blowpipe into that so instead of working with room temperature glass and melting it down just a simple skill it's very similar to picking up honey on a honey dipper so constantly keeping it turning that's like a very basic skill just getting it on there and being able to shape it but then you proceed from a paperweight to a bowl and glass form. Um, then we learn a little bit about sculpture, what's called bringing bits, where you start with a main blob of glass, form that, and then other people bring additional pieces of glass and attach it. Uh, and then the last week, you actually get to combine all the skills that you learned in the rest of the program and design and create your own sculpture. What's the blowpipe made of exactly? What can you use to handle molten glass? Uh, well, it is. It's actually just aluminum, but it's very dense and uh I believe it's aluminum, actually. Now I'm questioning myself. But it's a, it's a very long metal rod, and there's actually like a cooling system in the hot shop. So after you gather the uh, molten glass, there's a, a way to cool the mid part of the pipe. Um, and it does, it's really visual, like you can really see what part is hot and what part isn't. But you've got about a five-foot-long blowpipe that you're working with. I imagine, you know, th- th- it'd be easy to tell because one part is fluorescent and the other is not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely, the glass will be obviously orange, uh, but then the rest of the pipe, there's just sort of a marker as to where it's gotten hot. Um, it, but you can you can really tell. That's one of the first things that instructors teach people is where to touch and where not to touch. Yep, yep, I can understand that. It's a pretty valid lesson. Yeah, choke down when in doubt. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and um, some of the pieces of art that I've seen here are actually very interesting. There's some vase, and there's one, the only way I can describe it is as an eyeball fish. Yep, that would be by probably Laura Burns, who is one of our glass artists who makes really, like, uh, if Dr. Seuss was a glass blower, he would make work very similar to what Laura Burns That's makes. That's alarmingly accurate. <laughs> yeah, they're fantastical. They're sometimes, uh, they're playful, but have, like, a funny edge to them, like the eyeball monster. 
And that's that's a sculpture. Yes. So that would be a hot shop sculpture. So that would be working with what's called glass blowing. We also have uh, other equipment too. So we have a, what we call the flame shop where people can make um, either beads or small sculptures. Um, so you could translate that hot shop sculpture into a miniature version as like a pendant or something, which is what Laura's been doing lately, which is really neat to see those sculptures scaled down. Um, isn't everything kind of neater in miniature? Like, well, the glass menagerie, right? Indeed. Yes. <laughs> Tennessee was onto something. Yeah, it's, it's, it is a fascinating thing. And there's some fascinating things. Is, are there different varieties of glass necessarily? There are. So there's one of the things, often we get people contacting us asking about a piece that they own that was damaged, often like an heirloom or a wedding present, the things you're sentimental about. And we can't repair them most of the time because glass types are not compatible based on really one thing, which is called the coefficient of expansion. So anyone who's listening with a science background probably knows what that means, but basically they expand and contract at different rates. So there's different kinds of glasses that are not compatible, which is why we can't necessarily go in and repair a piece of glass, because we don't know what kind of glass was used. So in our co-op, we use three kinds of glass. One is the furnace glass that has a very high COE. Then there's uh, what's called soda lime or soft glass, which is colorful rods of glass you use on the torch to create um, usually beads. Then there's borosilicate glass, which is mostly known as its uh, brand name Pyrex. It's really similar. It's very, uh, it can take, it doesn't do uh, heat shocking in the same way that other glasses do. So it can take a big range of temperatures. It's actually what most people are familiar with uh, borosilicate either through Pyrex or through um, Pipe and paraphernalia, as that is always made out of borosilicate glass. Ah, for for those um, four twenty friendly. Yeah, for those lay people, the... a lot of people have for... handmade glass, whether they realize yes, it or not. Yes, I was gonna, I was going to say <laughs> that is definitely a way to reach the majority of Vancouver. Mm -hmm. Are there a lot of requests for that coming through? Uh, there are. At the time, at currently the studio, we don't actually make any pipes or paraphernalia at the studio, but we're looking into options as the as the laws change. Would that be in conjunction with dispensaries or? Well, more like. Just looking at, again, because we're driven by co-op members, we really follow what the members want. And the members did have some concerns about how that would affect things just on a logistical level. Like, for example, if you wanted to start making uh, big sculptural pieces, uh, that would impact some of our resources in the studio. So we're just trying to figure out a way whether or not that's something we can really accommodate or whether it would be uh, bringing people in and then not really being able to accommodate what they want to do in, this, in the workplace. you got to figure out what to do with the amount of silica you've got. Basically. Sort of, sort yeah. of portion it out. Well, not so much. There's an unlimited supply of unheated glass. It's what you do after you're done making something. Because uh, while it will cool down on its own at room temperature, it's very unstable. So they need to be put through what's called an annealing process. And uh, the equipment is basically a kiln. It's the same thing that's used in ceramics. But instead of bringing something from a room temperature to a high temperature, you're gradually bringing it from crazy, crazy hot down to room temperature. So that's where the uh, space comes in. So after working on the projects, we don't necessarily have enough annealer space to be doing a dozen, you know, big sculptural bongs or something like that. Because I was wondering when you mentioned ceramics and glass in conjunction, if it's something like the kiln was a, a, the common factor there, like the need to get something very high heat very quick. Yeah, that's actually like one of the things that's uh, very much in common between the two media because they are silica based. Um, they're very, uh, Basically, they go through, ceramics goes through a process called vitrification, which means that it's been heated sufficiently that um, it's now one solid unit. And glass, the temperature is the opposite, where it's just a matter of taking it from the very high working temperature down to room temperature. The glass will, um, it basically takes care of itself in terms of uh, be being solid and being cohesive as long as it's been brought down to room temperature at a reasonable rate. Fair enough. Yeah. Now, if we were to go to your event, Spark, Fire, and Light, this mm -hmm. Saturday, mm -hmm. what would we see being done specifically? Like, what, what is on the table mm -hmm. for one who, as myself, doesn't have any experience with glass blowing? So what's unique about Spark, Fire, and Light is that it's, our, it's a fundraiser that supports our education program. And again, uh, because we have actually... We have the most education programs anywhere west of Ontario that isn't nece necessary to go to art school to access. And also... Um, it supports just people having the opportunity to learn about this. We have like the lowest access rates in North America. So that's what it would support. When you walk in the door, what you're going to see is a really nice kind of cradle to grave version of what you do working in glass. We'll have live glass blowing demonstrations by some of Canada's most celebrated glass artists, as well as we'll have a silent auction that's curated and it's from some of North America's premier glass artists. So you can really see not only the end result, but how these things are made, because all of the people who are demonstrating also have um, work available in the silent auction. 
Some of the people that you'll have the, the privilege of seeing are include Brad Turner, um, Jan Poldis, um, Naoko Takanuchi, and uh, Tara Pawson and Kaylee Bai. Now, all of these members, or all these people are members of our co-op. Uh, many of them have won the RBC Glass Award, which is Canada's most prestigious award in glass. And um, you'll also be treated to delicious foods from Lazy Gourmet, uh, craft beer from Storm Brewing and the Granville Island Brewery. And uh, it'll be just a really fun, informative night to see how things are made, see what we do in the studio, and enjoy some finished pieces of glass. All right. Well, that sounds like it'd be a fun Saturday. Mm. All right. You heard it from us. Uh, Terminal City Glass this Saturday um, from 7 p.m. to 11 p.m.? That's correct. Yeah, 7 to 11. And tickets are $35. You can actually get a 10% discount as a CITR listener. If you uh, go to our website, www.terminalcityglass.com. And when you're checking out, if you type in FRIENDS10, that's F-R-I-E-N-D-S-10, all caps, in the uh, coupon box when you're checking out, you'll get 10% off your ticket. Hope to see you there. Excellent. Well, good to hear from you. Thank you. Uh, um, and after a word from our sponsor, we'll be back with correspondent Christine Kim regarding uh, Midsummer Night's Dream as a ballet. This is going to be good. Thank you very much, Laura. That was very, that was very good. That was very An evening in Damascus returns for its fourth year. Join us on July 31st as this fundraiser brings the soul of Syria to the heart of Vancouver with music, storytelling, dancing, wine, and food. All proceeds go to support queer Syrian refugees. For more information and tickets, visit eveningindamascus.com. On Sunday, May 6th, participate and fundraise in the Vancouver Investors Group Walk for Alzheimer's. It's a fun and family-friendly event that sends a message of inclusion and hope to the estimated 70,000 British Columbians living with dementia and the people who care for them. The Vancouver Walk will take place at Creekside Community Recreation Centre at 12pm. To learn more about how you can join us and create a movement, visit www.walkforalzheimers.ca. Vancouver, together, we make memories matter. That guy was doing an unfortunately good impression of my vocal tics. Hi, this is Jake Clark, CITR Arts Report, Unseed Muscum Territory, Vancouver's Point Grey, UBC, UBC's Point Grey Campus, Midsummer Night Stream, you got <laughs> for it. which I am joined by two of our correspondents. Hi, I'm Ileana Sosa. Hi, I'm Christine Kim. And Christine, you saw Midsummer Night's Dream. I did. I went to go see Coastal City Ballet's performance of that show on Saturday, last Saturday, May the 19th, at the Vancouver Playhouse with my friend Sylvia. Sylvia oh, nice. Young. She actually graduated today. I saw her um, and said congrats. Um, and we recorded last Saturday a review of the performance right afterwards in the lobby area. And I really wanted to, to play it today on the show, but when I was listening back to our review, the background noise was way too loud. Like people were kind of screaming in the background. I don't I don't know. There was it was a very rambunctious crowd. <laughs> so I can't uh, unfortunately I don't have the original audio to play. Um, so I'll have to just verbally relay what Sylvia and I talked about. Um, so sorry Sylvia, but um, screaming in the background always a good sign. But I promise this review will still be entertaining. I hope. I think it will be. Um, so Sylvia and I um, really liked the performance. Um, she Sylvia had said that she um, was surprised at different aspects about the performance, specifically about how easy it was for her to follow along with the original story of Midsummer Night's Dream through dancers' facial, facial expressions, body language, uh, and the music. Because usually when you go see a ballet performance, you do have to kind of read the explanation of the scenes because there's no talking and a lot of the dancing is very... Interpretive? <laughs> well, it's... It's less about telling story and it's more about um, 
the show involved. It's more about ballet. It's more about the technique and the and showing off kind of the skill of ballet dancers than it is about telling the story. Yeah, yeah. So she was surprised at so Sylvia was saying that she was surprised at how how easy it was to plainly see the storyline of Midsummer Night's Dreams and all the ups and downs cuz Midsummer Night's Dreams there's a lot of interlinking Yeah, there's a lot of moving and... parts. There's three separate casts of characters basically. Exactly. And I mean, overall, Sylvia liked the performance, but for me, that was a little, that was unexpected and also something that I had wished was less emphasized, I guess, up on stage. Um, because I had, I've seen Coastal Ballet's performances um, in 2016 for their Swan Lake performance and this year for their Vancouver International Dance performance. And I know that they have really talented dancers and they're usually really, their performances are usually really um, memorable and good. Not that this one wasn't, but I did feel like the performance focused more on kind of how outrageous a Midsummer Night's Dream is, how like comedic it's supposed to be. Um, and so there was more emphasis on like getting audiences involved and reacting than I think on the actual ballet, the yeah. actual ballet performance, which I mean, don't get me wrong, I love Midsummer Night's Dream. I love the characters in the in the story. It's just not what I was expecting because I also love ballet performances and and that was what I was going for. So, I mean, I had a good time though. I had a good time. A lot of moments when I was kind of clutching my stomach laughing. Um, okay, well, that's that's a good conveyance. Midsummer Night's Dream is pretty funny. It is. I am curious how they conveyed bottom. Oh my gosh, yeah, bottom. Um, so That's a good start. <laughs> well, I mean, it wasn't anything too over the top. Um, Bottom is the character that has the, the yeah, ears. The donkey's head, yes. He came out, um, and they when he does kind of the, the transition from being a human to a donkey, mm-hmm. um, again, this was where kind of the dancing fell apart a little. Um, the reactions of all the of all his castmates because they're also bottom is part of like a play a troupe yeah Um, Yeah. so when bottom kind of has the ears on because he went off stage and came back with with the ears everybody kind of like throws their hands up in the air and runs around and everyone's really shocked and you can see that very plainly from their facial expressions and from their body language and when bottom when titania falls in love, not falls in love, but becomes enamored with Bottom with the donkey ears. Don't fall in love with them from the potion. They have a scene where Bottom is on top of Titania, and you can only see Titania's legs and arms, and Bottom Uh. is is straddling her on the floor, and they're, they're, like, shaking like vibrating, oh. so everyone was laughing in the crowd. But it's it was I think it was I get a little what bit, at with that. It was a little <laughs> bit crass. I remember Sylvia asking me, "Does Bottom have sex with Titania?" And I was like, "Uh, well, I mean, in the play, they do. They are you could you could play you could it that way. yeah you could." Um, so it, it, there was also a lot of kissing on stage. Uh, which I which I was also surprised about, but there I mean Midsummer Night's Dream is all about love and and those love rectangles, triangles, whatever. Like, sort you of <laughs> sort of very advanced love geometry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I will say there's two before um, there's two dancers that I really want to highlight because, like I said, I mean I I, I thought the performance was very uh, was very entertaining. Um, but again, I, I had said I, I wish there was more ballet to it. Um, but there were two dancers who I thought had a really great ballet number that stuck out to me throughout from the beginning to the end. Um, the two dancers, they played Hippolyta. I hope I'm pronouncing that yep, right. Yep, Hippolyta and Theseus. So in the very beginning, Hippolyta and Theseus are preparing for their marriage. Um, so Hippolyta was played by Rebecca Middleton and Theseus by Gabriel Ritzman. Um, and really, these two, ha- I thought they had such a fantastic number on stage. They played 
um, they performed really difficult movements like ballet movements with so much poise and grace. And I actually think um, Gabriel Ritzman is a guest performer whom Coastal Ballet, they do this for almost all of their their big uh, year annual shows where they invite guests from all over the world really to come and be part of their show. And I think Gabriel Ritzman was Actually, I'm, I'm sure Gabriel Ripsman was one of those guest performers. So it was really cool to see him on stage and obviously Rebecca Middleton, who is um, a member of the Coastal C- City Ballet Company. Uh, really props to them. I, I really enjoyed their short number. I wish there, there we saw more of them. But even in the play, Hippolyta and Theseus, yeah, they're, they're pretty, not. They're pretty minor characters. Yeah. So. As they, they sort of really only come around at the end. Exactly. And a little bit in the beginning, which is why yeah. I was like, oh, man, I wish I saw more of you. But I kind of get it because you are playing these characters. Um, the other thing that's kind of cool is, so this ballet performance, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, if any of you guys want to check it out, is playing again, um, second showing at the Surrey Arts Center on June the 8th. Um, oh, but... Not everyone plays the same character. So the people that we saw today are going to be playing different characters on June the 8th. So even if you had gone to see the May 19th performance, which Sylvia and I saw, you're going to be seeing different people perform those sequences again, um, which I thought was kind of cool because they, they, Coastal City Ballet only does two performances. And I mean, if someone, if members of their troupe had learned to play this certain character, it's cool that they kind of mix things up again and do the whole thing again, but with like different, different people playing different parts. So, so yeah, if any of you guys, if anyone um, is interested, you can get tickets uh, on the Coastal City Ballet website, www.coastalcityballet.com, and check out the dancers and the and the and the uh, rest of the troupe. That's interesting that you mentioned it's very sort of this very frenetic sort of entertaining show because. I was wondering, like, because I, I don't think I've ever seen a ballet. What? You've never seen a ballet? <laughs> what? Shocking, I know. Oh, Jake, what, it's because you it... watch too many movies. Your time is all filled up with films. <laughs> this is why. My time is filled up with... I, I'm seeing uh, a double feature of, uh, I think it's uh, um, at Expressions Fest on Thursday. I'm seeing a double feature of Greek tragedy and a play about, I, I believe, missing Aboriginal women. So that's that's what I have on my plate for this this bit, which mm. is a li- little farther away from Miss, ballet. Yeah. In in yeah. terms of, just in terms of presentation, yeah. But it's. Fair. But do you think that if I went into this like not knowing that much about ballet, I'd I'd be say, okay, oh yeah, this is this is like a dance show I can because I know about Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh yeah, so definitely. Be, okay. If you know Midsummer Night's Dreams, not even if you know all of the characters and their names and their plots and their storylines, just if you've even heard of Midsummer Night's Dream and then you came to see this show, you'd be able to follow along from start to finish what's going on. Um, I think you'd be surprised. I mean, I think that shouldn't give you um, a general impression of what ballet shows normally are like, though. I think Coastal City Ballet was really pushing the boundaries of... of taking a ballet performance and making it more accessible to a, an adult or, or young adult audience. Young adult audience who maybe would think that a ballet performance is, is boring or Very not. Very staid sort of um, structured art form. Yeah, which it normally is, but um, I think they've really changed it up. Uh, this time around, which again I was I was surprised at because I've seen their past performances um, before and was expecting more of the the ballet performance style, um, but but it was it was yeah definitely a show a show to remember. It was it was a show. <laughs> <laughs> it was a show that had performers in it. 
show <laughs> they occasionally thing. moved why well, is it much more than that i mean we're not gonna we're not gonna take it so vague as to say it was just a show no it was coastal city ballet's show of midsummer night's dream well, by shakespeare it's interesting to me because we have a shout out here for another variety of dance show which is very sort of on the other side of it. it's an arios's aerial dance Ariel. Yeah. Oh. They're, it's, uh, it's called Second Nature, and it's based around, um, quote, the versatile attributes of grass, forest, tools, musical instruments, furniture, clothing, architecture, and infrastructure through bamboo. Um, and, yeah, it's an aerial dance show, as in the dancers are above the ground. That's so cool. Yeah. For longer than a jump. So that's that's gonna be something. Um, I have no read on that necessarily. There's probably a lot of acrobatics in the show. That's what it seems like to yeah. me. Like like almost more or more of an acrobatic. It says a full evening work of vertical dance. Okay, cool. As you do, I <laughs> I, I after a long night of dance, I would find it difficult to remain vertical as well. Um, it, it's very physically strenuous. It is. Uh, and if you're moving in all three dimensions, you know it's. Uh, <laughs> It's it's a little bit more, so I would say. Uh, that's at the Scotiabank Dance Center from the 24th to 26th. There is a post-show artist talk back on the 25th if you want to hear how that's possible. Um, yeah, I just thought that was interesting. We were going to have uh, an interview with uh, some of the people behind it, but we couldn't quite make it work with the schedule. So oh, darn. We, do, we do want you to maybe check out the show. Again, it's vertical dance. They're suspended above the ground. I just it's, it's just like, you know, one of the things that makes insurance people for the theater just mop sweat off their brow. Like, okay, okay, here's another one. <laughs> okay, we just need to do it for three shows. Let's do it. We can, we can do three shows, right? Dan, we can do three shows, right? As you do. Do you know how much tickets are? Uh, they are uh, 32 to 24 dollars. Am I misreading that? Yeah. Uh, the, the It looks like the ceiling's 32 and the basement is 24. I see. I see. Yeah. Um, and so at, if you like Cirque du Soleil but can't afford tickets to go all the way to Las Vegas, here's Vertical, yeah. Like something <laughs> something slightly similar. Yeah. It's six athletic dancers interact with bamboo. And if it wasn't for the rest of the show, I could make an innuendo about that. But I won't. <laughs> I won't. Thank goodness. I mean, I kind of just did, but um, yeah, you totally did. Like, yeah. well, so it is. Come on, I'm only human. Okay, so that's uh, that's that's our show for today. Um, join us next week for more exciting fun in the arts in Vancouver. Uh, I'm Jake Clark. I'm Christine Kim. I'm Eliana Sosa. And uh, it was a it was a pleasure as always. Cheers. <laughs>